Sri Harinam Prabhuki Jai, Guru Vaishnava Guru Paramparagi Jai, Krantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai, Gaur Premanandi. So gathering again to discuss from Srimad Bhagavatam, we're discussing the prayers of Queen Kunti as they appear in 8th chapter of the 1st canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Tonight we come to text 28. Kunti says, Manye tvam kalam ishanam anadi nidanam vibhum samam charantam sarvatra bhutanam yan mitakalihi So here, Kunti Devi, Kunti Devi, of course, again is the and the divine play or the lila of Krishna. She is one of his aunts. She is the sister of Vasudeva, the father of Krishna, in Mathura, and so she has a very intimate uh, relationship with him. He would come and touch her feet and ask her blessings, and so on and so forth. And uh, all of this, of course, is now um, very bewildering to her, her intimate relationship with him, as she has seen some very extraordinary prowess on his part in this section, where he has protected her sons from uh, great... uh, Weapon and beyond that, protected her uh, grandson to be Maharaj Parikshit, who was inside the womb. So inside the womb he, of Uttara, he went and protected Parikshit, and outside her sons. And it's a very extraordinary display of godly power <coughs> described earlier. And having seen that, her prayers have ensued, and um, so she is kind of moving between these uh, realities of, of her uh, love that, as I say, she has intimate love, loving Krishna like a, like, like a subordinate. Mm-hmm. We see that she has, um, in, in glorifying bhakti as she has earlier, she singled out Vasudev, mm-hmm. Devaki, Nandu Maharaj and so forth, all of whom also have parental love for Krishna, uh, as is her uh, reality. Um, but she's, must I say, moving between that and the fact that is apparent to her, given the godly display of Lord Krishna, that he is God. So here tonight again, she's using some very um, uh, high-sounding words that are philosophical and uh, glorifying him as God. So this again is bewildering to her. <laughs> he's God. He's my my uh, my nephew, um, and this way she's. Moving between two two spiritual worlds, if you will, the nature of her love, of course, as we've mentioned before, um, is different than the nature of the love of the inhabitants of Vrindavan, who, despite seeing any display of godliness on Krishna's part, um, that never erodes or causes their love and intimacy to recede to the background, if they see Krishna doing something very extraordinary, like the lifting of Govardhan Hill, then they think they better help him out, because you know he's just uh, their son, their friend, and so on and so forth. Yes, he has some powers given to him by, by Narayan, but mm, they could fail at some point. And <laughs> so, uh, but Kunti Devi's love is, is different in this regard. It's, it has 
uh, it's not what we would call gan shunya. It hasn't retired entirely, it doesn't have the force to retire entirely. The fact, the tattva, uh, that, uh, that Krishna is God. Which one is more real? This is the question. Is he really, is he really God or is he really the son of Yashoda? Hmm. <laughs> and of course we weigh in on the other side in as much as Krishna and love of Krishna are one and the same. Someone had asked me the other day on the phone conference that we have weekly um, that uh, subject came up of how Krishna is said to be always in Vrindavan, but he appears to leave Vrindavan and go to Mathura and kill Kamsa and wreck the fort at Dwarka and so forth. And I explained that, yes, he's actually more present in Vrindavan in his absence from Vrindavan than he is present in Dwarka or Mathura in his presence in Dwarka and Mathura. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Because, and this is the teaching, because the measure of the love of the devotees there is is so extraordinary hmm, that um, it only grows in fondness in its separation that the devotees in Dwarak and Mathura, they're in awe of the measure of their love. And of course, wherever he's being loved, God is there. People say they don't believe in God. One of our replies is, do you believe in love of God? Hmm. And then we can point to examples of such. Here's an example of love of God. Here's another example of love of God. Hmm. Uh, the Christ was an example of sacrificing, and, and the story is a very extraordinary. Hmm. It's superhuman to think that someone would, would do as such, or the the life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his, um, his, uh, the measure of his love of God swooning and falling on the ground at the mention of the name of Krishna and so on and so forth. You can try to attribute these things to something else uh, and say they really didn't know what they were talking about. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was really an epileptic or something like that. They somehow tried like that. But as I said before, epilepsy is not contagious. So it doesn't hold up <laughs> we find it was very contagious and so a whole movement and body of literature from learned people at the time uh, Nabhadweep at the time regarding Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was a center of learning and um, and uh, from that center of learning and the pens of, of a, a good number of learned men who knew even the, the universal as it was although they were Bengalis, uh, religious language of Sanskrit and could write and compose in it and so forth. They were educated people. Uh, I mean, for that matter, Rup, Sanatana Goswami, Sanatana Goswami's disappearance days tomorrow, we'll speak about him. These were ministers in the government. They're like, they were like, um, you know, cabinet members of the president and they were writing about the phenomenon of Sri Chaitanya and, uh, so uh, imagine it in our times, but we, we know in our times that what the cabinet members write about or, you know, the senators or, or well-known talking heads and whatnot, intellectuals and so forth. The people listen to that, they take that seriously and so forth. Hmm? So um, the love of God, my point is, has great power to move a number of people. So you may not believe in God, you may not see God, but can see love of God. We can see what is called love of God. We may try to call it something else, some some problem in the brain or or, or what not, but that cannot be uh, demonstrated. You can't find the God. They say they found the God, what do they call it? The God particle. Hmm. But the God experience, God particle is a Hig, Higgs boson. <laughs> They want to call the God particle after Higgs, but there's some kind of particle uh, that they say is the missing particle or something, the missing link in the particle realm to the cause of the Big Bang or something like that, which is thought to be the generation of the universe. So with, uh, with finding that 
particle, then it's, it helps to validate their theories about the Big Bang, which um, are not necessarily contradictory to uh, <laughs> what, um, what we teach. Um, it's not a comprehensive explanation of the uh, manifestation of the world and so forth. <clears throat> but it is a particular angle of vision that might have some, uh, might be credible on a particular level. Uh, but anyway, so they found the Higgs boson, or they found a footprint of it. That's what they said. They haven't quite found it. It was a recent news article, maybe it came out today. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, they have not found the uh, the God experience. There's a fellow in Canada that made a machine, I've been told, uh, for the, that gives you the God experience. It's supposed to like set your brain off in a certain way that you start to feel the ecstasies of the Rumi and of Jesus and of Chaitanya and so forth. But um, one person who wrote a, a fairly detailed, I should say, book on mysticism, uh, and in the context of doing it, went and you know sat in the God machine, and so forth, but he didn't get a buzz. <laughs> so... Uh, so they haven't found the God experience. They haven't demonstrated that the God experience is something other than what the the uh, those those moved by those experiencing it say it is. And um, you can talk about it and analyze it and so forth. I I saw a video uh, once of a debate with uh, Sam Harris and and somebody else. And uh, Sam Harris is a famous atheist and. A little influenced by Eastern thinking, and and it caves in to one extent or another, um, if you really understand it. Uh, but uh, uh, he said that he they had examined some yogi who had lived in a cave or something like that for thirty years, his brain, and and they and he, they said he doesn't really know what he's experiencing. He he didn't even know what he was experiencing. He didn't know how this brain, you know, this neuron was firing, and that neuron. And I had to really laugh about that. <clears throat> I had to chuckle about that. Sam, I think he might say hey, you really didn't know what he was experiencing. You might be able to describe some corresponding um, <clears throat> expression of or mechanism, physical mechanism through which the ecstasy. Uh, exerts itself in 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 the body and so on and so forth, but <clears throat> but that's not to say that it's it's is physically based and and um, if you would only enter into that experience, I think you'd probably talk about it differently, like most people do. Hmm? If you could really give the God experience in a machine, there would be people would be lined up around the block and they would never. They would they keep putting quarters in to have it. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, where there's, uh, this is a nice teaching in the Gita too, we find in the ninth chapter of the Gita where Krishna says, avajananti mamudha manushum tanam ashrita param baba magana ajananto mamabhuta maheshwaram. Foolish people deride me when I descend in my human form. They don't understand me for who I am, that I am transcendental and so forth. And then he goes on in a, in a maybe a couple of verses later, Mahatmanastamam Partha Daivim Prakriti Mashri to describe those who have love of God. Hmm. Look at it carefully, he's really saying, you know, fools derive me, they can't understand me. If they would look and see those who have love for me, they would find me there. Hmm. These are the people that have the power, the force, the fortitude to turn their back if you will, on the world. The invite, the, the the temptation, if you will, of the world. It's no small thing to conquer over lust, greed, envy, jealousy, to make the mind to 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 start to to, to know beyond thinking. We think that by thinking we will know. Remind me of a song of Joni Mitchell, but I can't remember the lyric now. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway. Mm.
think that thinking makes things so, something like that. Uh, um, only when you get there, you'll know, or something like that. Anyway, so beyond thought is, um, there's, there's, there's a knowing thought that gets in the way of actually knowing. So these are no small things to accomplish. Hmm? To, uh, to, to close down the mind, to conquer over the, uh, well, yeah, the, the human frailties, if you will. You have to be a general person to, be, to become so strong. Hmm. To be able to turn the other cheek and so on and so forth. It takes a lot of strength. There's, therefore, sometimes dharma hmm, is also compared to strength. Hmm. It's the real strength of the world and so forth. What to speak of prema dharma, love of God. So these persons uh, they stand very tall in the world, hmm? and in them we find there God is present. There hmm? we may not see God, but we can see love of God, and this love of God is 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 where God is to be found more than anywhere else. So in Vrindavan. We've, this is the teaching, of course, of the Bhagavatam. We find an extraordinary measure of love, and therefore statements like Krishna never steps a step outside of Vrindavan uh, can be, um, when, he, when he appears to have, have, have walked away or driven away on the chariot, how can we resolve these two things? Hmm? Because he is non-different from love of himself. Hmm? Wherever he's the object of love, so he has to be there wherever love is. He's even present in love experienced in apparent separation from him. Indeed, there's the argument that in union there's one Krishna and in separation there are millions of Krishnas. One is seeing everything and reminding them of Krishna, of God, in separation. So by that argument, he's more present in his apparent absence. So he's, he's, he's present in Vrindavan. He never leaves there. He's more present there when he's ostensibly present elsewhere. Hmm. Uh, so uh, she has uh, a kind of love that that um, is 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 mixed with a knowing of the godhood of Krishna that we don't find in Vrindavan. It's not mixed with that. Hmm. It's called in the language of uh, Chaitanya Charitamrita. Gyan Shunya Bhakti. Gyan in this sense means knowledge, but it means knowledge of the Godhood of Godhead. What were we hearing this morning? Uh, some philosopher named Nicholas Chuso or something like that, and he had a theory of, what was it? Divine ignorance? Learned ignorance. And Sridhar Marsh was asked about that. He said, yes, we have a doctrine like this. Learned ignorance. That's uh, or is another way of thinking a divine ignorance, which is the which is the full knowing. Hmm? And we say, of course, those who say they know Brahman don't know Brahman. Those who say they don't know Brahman, they know Brahman. He's unknowable. Hmm? So it's a kind of a theistic agnosticism. We acknowledge an unknowing and an uncertainty, which is present in love. In love, we don't know. If our lover loves us, therefore we ask, would you still love me? <laughs> you never say it, or you haven't said it lately. <laughs> uh, or the fellow is there with the clover, she loves me, she loves me not. Hmm. Some uncertainty. Hmm. We should be prepared for that. We there's, there, there are two sides to it. There's, there's, there's unknowing, Hmm. there's the overt unknowing and then there's the unknowing in thinking that you know. Then you really don't know. Hmm. When you start to think, I really don't know, then you're starting to know something. Hmm. So at any rate, Kuntidevi is waxing and waning, if you will, between these, these her realities. Hmm. This is her reality. Sometimes she'll see him as God, and that will take precedence, and then sometimes that will recede to the background, and she'll see him only as her, her nephew.
So at this point, at the previous verse, she has glorified uh, devotion and devotees, akinchanas, selfless devotees who are the wealth of Krishna, who has made uh, their their lives uh, from a material perspective difficult, taken everything away from them and so forth, um, because he's not in those things, uh, as it said. And his partiality uh, towards his devotees was uh, brought up. Now in this verse, in the next couple of verses, she's going to kind of go the other way. And having said that he's partial, which is starting to take her in the direction of of her um, her stayibhav as the aunt of Krishna, rather than uh, in, in 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 reverence and awe of him. Well, that's part of her stayibhav. But I mean that that one side, the intimate side. Um, she's going to wax back now and give a philosophical explanation of how, although he's partial, he's not partial. Hmm. Partiality would seem to be a blemish for the person who is the center, and he should be fair to everyone, equal to everyone. If the, if the president is bought out by a car corporation, then we think his position is compromised. He should be fair to everyone, objective, and so forth. So the idea that God is partial is very charming, but then if one doesn't understand it properly, it starts to look like a, like a blemish. He lets his devotees off the hook, even if they have some shortcomings. He overlooks them. He tells Arjuna, you'd better overlook them too, in the Gita, because they're properly situated. They're my people. I love them with all their faults, and so forth. And, of course, he's gentle with them, kind with them but they'll, they'll overcome in due course, and so forth. And why? Why will they overcome those faults? Because of the generosity of Krishna, because of the partiality of Krishna. If you really meditate on this point, then you, you're embarrassed into um, uh, foregoing things which are not favorable for Krishna Bhakti. Hmm. You're humbled by the, by, the, by the humility, kindness, the generosity of Krishna. Hmm. It's not by some force or strength I'm going to conquer over my bad habits, necessarily. We may employ whatever we can to help us in that regard. Um, seeing our body and our psyche as uh, the, the property of Guru and Krishna for divine service and so forth. But ultimately, understanding the object of our love is the, is the remedy to all of our problems all of our shortcomings, any moral lapse that we may experience. He's so generous, so kind, so um, gentle, forgiving, and so forth with his devotees, and rightly so. So at any rate, still, um, someone may have a hard time with this. And of course, we look, so if we look, move from that um, affectionate devotional perspective to an objective perspective, we can find that underlying that, Krishna's, we can say he's impartial at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so this is a philosophical position. It's then one that's more of a bhava. Mm-hmm. Krishna's partial to his devotees. Bhakti is a partiality. Some love Ram. Some love Krishna. Some love Narsingha. They're partial. They're biased to one or another. Mm-hmm. But if we... And, and that is a beautiful thing in bhakti. But then if we look underneath that, that's a bhava. If we look underneath that for, 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 for a philosophical tattva explanation, we can show, well, actually, they're, um, um, there's, no, there's no bias, or Krishna is not biased. He's reciprocating according to how they approach. So he's equal to everybody. He's approached differently, therefore he appears to be different. The sun is equal to everybody, but some people stand in the shadow. And some people go on the beach. 
And so, how, how can the son be? So she's going to speak like that. That's what, in a, in a couple of verses here. So we'll go through some of the um, words she's used to, to glorify him. She says, Muni, in my opinion, Munitwam, you kalamishanam. In my opinion, in my considered opinion, you are kalam ishanam. You are time. It's a little carryover from the previous verse. You are time. Time in the Gita is seen as the as is described as the destroyer of the worlds. Krishna says, Kalos me, I am time. <clears throat> destroyer of the worlds. This was a fa- famous Gita text that uh, Oppenheimer, uh, who was very prominent uh, German uh, immigrant, I guess, scientist, uh, had a very prominent role in the creation of the atom, atom bomb. This was a huge thing for for the world and a huge scientific uh, and moral quandary in, uh, of decades past that to create such a weapon of destruction and what it will do, is it morally right? And, and, and if not, and those who are uh, aggressors, Will will have the upper hand. Then is that any better? And 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 so anyway, he Einstein had this kind of dilemma too. I don't know how much he was involved. I guess to some extent. But Oppenheimer is the famous one who said he quoted this verse from the Gita. Hmm? Time I am destroyer of the worlds. So he he was thinking of the nuclear. What is it? Atom? Is it Atom's nuclear bomb? Some type? Atomic bomb in this way. Um, so, Kahala, the destroyer of the worlds, that which is taking everything away. Ayurharati by Pumsam Ujjanastam Janus. Harati means Hari Harati, to take away. Ayur, life. With the rising and setting of the sun, the sun is poetically the Kal Chakra, the, the chakra, the, the circle of the, of the sun. And as it moves, rising to setting the world, our life is being harati, taken away. We mentioned this verse as a favorite verse of mine the other night. Ayur harati vaipum sam. It says, the rising, with the rising and setting of the sun, everyone's life is being taken away. And then someone will say, well, actually, Swami, the sun is not rising and setting. But the earth is turning like this. Hmm? And I say, actually, you're dying. <laughs> and that, that, that's what actually the verse is saying. <laughs> Don't get distracted with the poetry here. <laughs> it's poetically telling you in a, in, a, in a kind of a beautiful way, you're dying. Hmm? And, and you can stop the dying. Hmm? By entering into the into the into poetic descriptions of the personality of Godhead, hmm? so um, so Kalam, it's a little bit of a carryover from the previous verse, where um, Kunti Devi uh, imp- implied with the words Atmaramaya, Shanta Aparamaya, his indifferent was the implication of it it there indifferent to others he stays inside of himself he doesn't go outside of himself he consorts or interacts with his devotees but he's interacting with his his own surup shakti that they have have, have made ingress into their lives and so forth or in some instances they are constituted of he doesn't go outside of himself so those who are outside of love of God, outside of the influence of the Sarup Shakti, he doesn't have anything to do with them. Hmm? Indeed, Kalam, uh, he destroys them. <laughs> In other words, uh, he witnesses, he gives, uh, he, he sanctions. He doesn't interfere with karma. He doesn't interfere with the justice of the world. The Jeev makes input into the machine of material nature, and the machine sends something back. And he doesn't interfere with that. He's just. But, 
as I said the other day, just as there in this hard little grass, as just there as there are jivas under the influence of of karma in the world, always there are jivas in the world who are sadhakas. Hmm? So he comes for them. Hmm? He intervenes in a sense, uh, and then they intervene as his kripa shakti, manifestations of his mercy. Those devotees intervene in the lives of others who are bound in the karmic uh, cycle by creating sukriti for them and so forth. Hmm? And in an openness then in, in their lives, teachable moments and so forth, that they can come out from this uh, circle of, uh, of, of karma. <clears throat> so... She says column, you know, it means destroyer, time, um, and the invocation here is, is something like the destroyer. He, not only does he love the devotees, but he destroys the non-devotees. It's kind of saying that, 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 that love is not just um, kind of a general, broad, compassionate love. But if you had the full measure of love, that it includes not loving someone who does not love the object of my love, hmm? who speaks ill about him or something like that, that, that side. Hmm? Um, but of course, the devotees then, being the Kripa Shakti of Krishna, the, the mercy, uh, embodiment of the mercy of Krishna, they extend the mercy of Krishna outside of the circle of the Surup Shakti. Hmm? And while Krishna appears to ignore them or to dismiss the demons or destroy them or whatever, the world is, is, is coming and going, so but time is destroying it all and all of your hopes and dreams and aspirations, material hopes, dreams and aspirations are being destroyed by time. Still the devotees, they extend this um, merciful, compassionate side of Krishna. They are the compassion of Krishna. Hmm. to others. So he appears to be um, cold towards them, but actually he's not through the devotees. He extends himself. So, Tvam Kalam, you are time. Hmm. You are the destroyer of the worlds. Ishanam, you are the, you are the controller. Kalam, Ishanam, these are all words in relation to the world. These are not uh, what we would call direct names of God, but indirect names of God. Previously, she's given very nice names of God when describing how to see him. Hmm? Earlier on, we discussed this, how to see him. Uh, you, nobody, you can't see him, no one can see him. Even the big, big Atmaramas may not see him, but I'm seeing him. The implication is, how am I seeing him? And she says, Vasudevaya, Govindaya, Devakinandanaya cha, Nandagopakumaraya. She starts describing all these devotees. It means by their love, that he's seen again, as I said earlier, in love of God. There he's to be found. Hmm? He's seen through eyes of love, so forth. So, those were all direct names of God, names of God that speak about Him in relation to a love of God. Those names are full of power. Hmm? Chaitanya Dev says, "What nam nam bohuda shakti." I have names. Krishna has names, and they are full of all of his shakti. These are the primary names of God. Primary names of God. Names of God that describe Him in relation to His devotees. Other names of God are being given here: Kalam, Time, Ishanam, the Controller. Hmm? This is in relation to the world. So these are secondary names of God. Uh, and you know, they speak more about the, the, the godly prowess of Krishna than they do about his loving interaction with his uh, devotees. And then anadi nidhanam, here now the word anadi comes. This has been a topic for some days here. Anadi um, nidhanam, so you're the, your time you are the Ishwar, the controller, and you are Anadi Nidanam. You have no beginning, you have no end. 
Of course, in the Gita, it's mentioned uh, Bali Vidyabhushan's commentary in the Gita. He posits five subjects that the Gita deals with: the God, material nature, time, the the individual soul, and karma. And God, time, the individual soul, and material nature—they're all eternal. They're anadi nidhanam. Just as described here, they have no beginning and they have no end. The karma, the fifth, differs in that it is anadi, but it is not nidhanam. nidhanam. It, is, it has no beginning, but it has an end. Hmm? It can come to an end. That is the good news. The fact that it has no beginning, of course, is uh, is because just as God here is being described as having no beginning, and these are, again, all names describing God in relation to the world, so this is a particular manifestation of the Godhead. The Paramatma, Mahavishnu, is one manifestation of the Paramatma, the overseer of the world, who is described as the par- as the Mahavishnu, the, 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 the Karanadakshai, Karvadakshai, Shiradakshai. It, it's a way of saying he's everywhere, he's... Every, everywhere in the world, he's the world's coming out of him. He's going into the world. Hmm? He's in each world within the worlds. He's in every atom within the world. The worlds are coming out of the pores of his body. Um, he's Vishnu, all pervasive. He's everywhere. Hmm? I uh, nowhere that he's not, and so forth. So. Uh, he, like Krishna, Anadi Radi Govindam Sarvakaranakaram, is Anadi. When we hear the word that, that, that Vishnu is Anadi, we don't think, well, that means that a long time ago he started. Hmm? It's, it, it's, you know, it's so long we can't trace out when he began. Nobody thinks like that. Hmm? Right? And so, as we know, the Mahavishnu has been described. This is, uh, we call it Srishti Leela. Hmm? You see, you can look at the something from the point of view of tattva, or you can look at something from the point of view of bhava. When you look at it from the bhava point of view, then it becomes leela. Then it becomes a poem, a poetic way of speaking about it. It's not that one is less real than the other. Hmm? In fact, the poetic way of speaking is more real. Hmm? And it gives us greater invitation and possibility uh, to participate in that. So there is no beginning to the world, but there's a leela, there's a play, there's a poetic description of the beginning and end, beginning and end. But the beginning and end, the world cycles, the expanding of the universe, the contracting of the universe, has no beginning. But there's a beginning within the beginningless. It begins, it ends, it begins, it ends. But there's no beginning to its beginning and ending. But this is actually a very beautiful idea, because if we ask the question, which comes first, the seed or the tree? Hmm? The, the, The cyclical idea of the world gives us the, it's a Zen cone, if you will, it gives us the answer, neither, because we can look and see in a circle. There's always a seed or a tree or a seed or a seed. Now, if it was a linear, if it was a line, hmm, then you can't see the end of it one way or the other way. And so it disturbs the mind, actually. Hmm? You can't answer the question. But if you look at it from a cyclical time point, then you can answer the question. Hmm? Neither one. Hmm? Both. Neither. Uh, there is no beginning. Mm. Which comes first, the, the, the chicken or the egg? And you say, neither one. It's like, oh, well, that's not fair. You didn't answer the question. Hmm? You, you cheated, something like that. No, that is the answer to the question. Hmm? The mind wants such a beginning. Hmm? But the teaching is, that we should rise above the mind and its demands, the demands of reason and so forth. 
reason may demand at the beginning. And this is what sometimes the Western scholars um, um, say in very superficially often dismissing Hinduism with regard to theodicy. Uh, what is the fault, if any, of God with regard to the world where there is evil? And in Christianity you have a bigger problem because God is said to have created the world. And there's evil in the world, so evil must be part of the creation of God. So you've got to do some foot, fancy footwork to get around that. Leibniz gave up, came up with the perfect, the, the best of all worlds, you know, kind of answer. God made the best world he could in consideration of hmm, the rebellious jivas or, or you know, the souls, something like that. that, that so then, then you look to Hinduism for an answer, and they have a whole different perspective. So the problem doesn't arise in the same way, hmm? and and so you say, well, you know, we say we say so. God's the source of the evil because God created the world. We say, well, no, God didn't create the world. Hmm? There is no creation. And they think you're sidestepping the question. Hmm? What's the beginning? What's the source of evil? There is no source of evil. They say, well, you're not answering the question, but that's how Hinduism does answer the question. It is an answer. Hmm? And if you if you stop thinking about it a little bit, it becomes very very satisfying. Actually, hmm? the idea is that the jiva has no beginning. That in, for example, in Ramanuja's philosophy, the jiva and the world are attributes of the body of God. Hmm? In Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the jiva, shakti, and the maya shakti, these are shaktis of Bhagavan. And he has a swarup shakti, he has an internal shakti. Now, if you study why he has them, it's not really a question of why he has them, but we see them. Hmm? Uh, we see love of God, we see the swarup shakti, we see the jiva ourself, we sense we are a self, we sense we are a, something more than matter, hmm? and that we matter, which matter doesn't, if there's nobody to matter about it, uh, to think about it, to care about it, and so forth. We see that we interact, what we see, we interact with, with material nature, and it can be troublesome. We see that. We have no reason to wonder when it began, or to say that it began at any point, necessarily. That's what's going on, and 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 these are shaktis of Bhagwan. So the so it's like we're describing reality. It's a person constituted of different powers, shaktis, energies. The energies are one with him and different from him at the same time, and and so they're functioning in certain ways, and that's just the nature of the uh, of reality. So. God didn't create the world. He didn't create souls. He didn't. Um, it's it's always been going on. There's a leela of creation. Hmm? So we talk about it, this anadi, as if there's a beginning, but there's no beginning to the cycles. And the Vishnu is dreaming, and the world is manifest, and the one becomes many. But there's no point in time where the one becomes many. Hmm? Hmm? Anyway, so Vishnu goes to sleep, and they all rest within him, and then they manifest out, but there's no beginning to this, these cycles. So anyway, we, we talk about it one way, we call it the Shrishti Lila. We talk about it another way from the point of view of tattva. We say there's there's no beginning. Hmm? As Gita says, 1320, the material nature and the the, the Jiva Shakti, they have, they're beginningless. Their interaction is beginningless. Uh, and why are they beginningless? Well, because God is beginningless. And they are shaktis. And then look at it further. If God is breathing is the way of poetically describing the expanding and contracting of the universes, then there's no point in time when, when the beginningless, the anadi God, started breathing, hmm? So the world cycles must be beginningless. 
And if God is beginningless, which they'll all accept, then the world cycles must be beginningless. I mean, this is a very, very obvious point of Hinduism and Vaishnavism. World cycles are beginningless. Hmm? Then what's left? Well, the soul is. The souls are beginningless. Uh, material nature is beginningless. The souls are beginningless. God is beginningless. And if the world's beginningless, what is the world? The world is the interaction between the jivas and material nature, and that interaction is what we call karma. So you can't have a beginningless world without beginningless karma. And you can't have uh, uh, a beginningless world without a beginningless God and so forth. So if God is beginningless, if the world is beginningless, if the jivas are beginningless, then the interaction between the jivas and the world are also beginningless. Hmm. That's what Jiva Shakti does until the Sarup Shakti intervenes hmm, in the world and makes possible bhakti and so forth. So, a very basic and uh, important point he's described here is Anadi, Nidanam. He has no beginning, hmm. he has no end. Vibhum, he's the great one. Samam, hmm. he's, so he's equal to everyone. Charantam, Sarvatra. Hmm? You kind of, he he's, goes with everybody at all times. And uh, Charantam, Sarvatra, but, Sarvatra, Bhutanam, and Yan Mitakali. Yan mita, Mitakali means like, it, 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 it means um, like together and separate. It's, it's, it's a way of saying that you are the abode of all contradictory things. There are, all, there are many contradictory things, they are all resolved in you. You are one thing and another thing, and it's opposite at the same time. Hmm? So this is how she's starting to wax into the description of how he is. He's impartial, but he's he's partial, but he's impartial at the same time. Hmm. Um, and she'll in in the way the Prabhupada explains this last line of the verse, Yanmita uh, Kali. He says that the uh, the dissensions or the differences between living beings are due to social intercourse. In other words, the differences between living beings that cause you to respond to them differently mm -hmm. don't make you impartial, but it's coming from their side. They're acting in a certain way, and that's causing you to respond in different ways, as if you were unequal. She'll clarify this further in the next two verses. Any question? <clears throat> What's the time? Yes? So before you were saying the uh, primary reason for Krishna to appear is he's uh, coming from those sadhakas and then as a byproduct in the national tradition. And it's the Kripa Shakti, the Sadhguru's act is the Kripa Shakti. So is that exactly the same case for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? Because if it, he has his internal reasons, then his external reasons to come. But is that like, uh, are those external reasons also primarily for the Sadhguru's distributing the love? The external the, reasons? Yeah, the secondary reasons for Mahaprabhu to come like uh, the, Well, the secondary, the, sec the secondary reasons for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to come are not really Yuga Dharma, but the secondary reasons are to give Rag Bhakti in the context of an apparent, uh, being a parent Yuga Avatar. Hmm? In other words, he 
this is a special Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, right? This is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with internal, Krishna with internal necessity, and his external necessity is giving Rag Bhakti, which is very, his external reason is very, his, his exoteric reason for appearing is very esoteric <laughs> uh, at the same time, and he has a super esoteric reason, you could say, as well. Hmm? So, uh, to give Rag Bhakti, and uh, he talks about it through the pen of Krishna Kaviraj Goswami, where he's saying that Dvaiti Bhakti doesn't give much, doesn't do much for me. Hmm? So I want to give people a chance for this. Hmm? Um, and of course, then, yeah, he's, uh, he, he meets with all types of devotees, but primarily devotees. He comes with his associates, he comes with devotees who are, he's collecting up for Rag Marg, but he also ministers to all types of devotees. Hmm. Am I answering your question? Yeah. 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 That's what I was considering. Primarily, he's still focused on the devotees. Yeah. And then they extend his mission out. As the yeah. At the same time, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna. He's, as a, he's in a role of a devotee of, a, of Krishna. So, um, there might be some cause to... Um, to uh, think of him in his leela as an acharya to being a direct uh, distributor of mercy to those who are not devotees. But actually he comes and stays within the circle of his eternal associates for the most part. Hmm. That's what he does. And um, there are some new recruits in his his circle, but he's always with his his companions at the same time, eternal associates. Do you understand his question? Yeah. I think like for example, the precaution and the Saraswati that was is a direct interrelationship there. There's no sadhak intermediate. Yeah, well, there was a sadhaka intermediary in the form of Tapan Mishra and Chandrasekhar who were there, and and they showed compassion. They wanted Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to come and and uh, deliver them from the Maya bodies and so forth. Mm. Um, so, what else? Grantra Srimad Bhagavatam Kidai O Premanandai